This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. What a week to be a football fan. Fresh off the Matildas' nail-biting World Cup quarterfinal win, we got the semi on Wednesday against England, the final this weekend. Australia's buzzing now. So how's this World Cup mania going to change the way we view women's sport in Australia? Like, when the tournament is over, what will be different? We're going to get into this a bit later. We're actually going to be speaking with Matilda on the podcast, so stay listening for that. Also coming up, there's been a massive legal win for overworked young doctors. What kind of precedent is it going to set? First, though. Hack. It's something that we've never seen before. This is going to go down in history as one of the worst disasters ever in Hawaii. On Triple J. You know, as an Australian, it can feel really overwhelming watching coverage of bushfires in other countries because if anyone fully appreciates the devastation and unpredictability of fires on communities, it's us. And during the northern summer, there's been no shortage of blazes in North America, Europe, Hawaii. More than 90 people have been confirmed dead in these fires in Maui, but that number may be nowhere near the actual death toll, with officials warning it's going to get a lot higher. They're searching through ash and rubble, looking for human remains. For those who survived, they're trying to figure out what happened, because there are real questions around why residents had such little warning and where all the government's support and aid is right now. April McLennan has more. Fire alarms rang out inside homes and businesses as fierce winds fanned the flames of wildfires that engulfed buildings in Hawaii last week. Some people ran into the nearby ocean with fears if they stayed put, they'd be burnt alive. I climbed over the seawall into the ocean and while um, the fire was happening and the cars were exploding, uh, we would duck into the water and we would put our mouths as close to the surface as we could so that we could breathe. But not everyone was saved. I ran out of the car and ran for my life, ran down to the ocean. I was only a quarter mile from the ocean. And they stayed in their car, they died with their dogs and everything. Three of my friends in one car and two dogs died. The town of Lahaina on Maui has basically been wiped off the map. Only the blackened frames of buildings remain. Most have been reduced to ash and rubble, with more than 2,200 homes destroyed. Heaps of people are still unaccounted for, so specially trained dogs have been brought in to help sniff out human remains. So far, the dogs have only searched about 3% of the area impacted by the fires, and authorities warn the death toll could rise as they cover more ground. This man's still holding out hope he can find his loved ones alive. We've been to a lot of hotels inside Lahaina, but none of them are there. So we've been to police station, we called Red Cross, anywhere that we can find them but nothing. The devastation and heartbreak felt by the locals is also mixed with anger towards the government. There's reports that none of Maui's early warning systems worked. Apparently the sirens didn't go off and people are saying they didn't get alerts on their phones either. An investigation has been launched but authorities say the fires took hold at a speed that even firefighters couldn't contain. With the recovery effort now underway, the communities banded together to deliver food, clothing and supplies to people who've lost everything. I've never seen anything like this on Maui. Just, sorry, I get emotional. Um, just the community pulling together has been amazing. But like I said, this is a long game. Unfortunately, some tourists are still flocking to the holiday destination despite the devastation. 
with residents shocked to see people holidaying in the area while they're still counting the dead. The same waters that our people just died in three days ago are the same waters the very next day these visitors, tourists, were swimming in. And it, that says a lot about where their heart and mind is through all of this and where our heart and mind is. You don't see our people swimming, snorkeling, surfing. Nobody is having fun in tragedy and continuing their lives like nothing has happened. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. And yeah, we're still seeing updates from Hawaii come in hour by hour. Let's find out a little bit more with someone who's there. Thomas Heaton is a journalist in Hawaii. He's a reporter with the Honolulu Civil Beat and he's with us now. Hey, Thomas, thanks for coming on, Hack. No worries. Pleasure to be here. You've actually been to Maui recently. What's it like at the moment? So I arrived on Maui uh, on Wednesday morning. First thing I did was I went to uh, Maui High School, which was, you know, being thronged by tourists and locals alike, people sheltering from Lahaina, those who managed to escape. And the the general feeling in the high school was certainly one of just severe angst. Everyone was really, really shaken, people literally shaking. Um, I met people who had been saved by the Coast Guard. They still had soot under their fingernails and they smelled of ash and you could just smell the fire on them and it wasn't like a smoke smell it was much more than that you could tell they had been surrounded by fire and a lot of dangerous things burning yeah it's uh, horrible and the pictures we're seeing come out of maui at the moment are just heartbreaking i mean you're speaking to locals i would imagine as well tom what are they saying in terms of this and being unprecedented have they seen anything like this before a lot of them feel that way. Yes. I mean, uh, a lot of them are raising concerns about the level of communication that there was prior to the fire. Um, There are some real concerns over the 911 calls not being able to go through, about the sirens not going off, about the evacuation orders not being timely enough. All of this is stuff that we're kind of covering here at Civil Beat. We're really trying to get down to the bottom of all of this. But, you know, the details of everything are still very vague. But what we're hearing on the ground is that in the course of events, there was just a lack of information and people were really struggling. And, of course, we really need to think about the fact that actually communication lines like cell phone service went out rapidly. One thing that was said to me was by a Lahaina resident was uh, it's, it was every man for himself. Being a Kiwi yourself, you would know that uh, here in Australia, we're very used to big bushfires, deadly bushfires. And the only upside to that is generally we're well prepared for this kind of situation. In Hawaii, how unusual is it for there to be wildfires? It's not, frankly. Over the past 10 years, experts have been predicting uh, a big fire. Year on year, there are wildfires, but they're generally in agricultural areas. People may not really realize this, but there's a big ranching culture in Hawaii, you know, lots of cattle ranches. So wildfires break out and with climate change taking hold and with invasive species of grasses that are adapted to fire and like fire, they're taking over from the native species that might actually be able to mitigate the problem. So it's becoming more and more of an issue, it feels like, over the past 10 years, just from my reading and living here. Every year there's almost been an unprecedented fire and it's just been through the hard work of firefighters who are chronically underfunded and are lacking in personnel that those fires haven't really gotten into communities. And of course this case is completely unprecedented. 
This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with journalist Thomas Heaton in Hawaii about the devastating fires there that have left dozens of people dead. Tom, I've seen that there's a lot of frustration from locals in Maui that they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting themselves and that they're wondering where the official aid is. Is that what you're hearing as well? Yes, actually, on uh, Wednesday morning, I was at Ma'alea Harbour, which is just probably about a 10, 15 minute drive from the airport south. And you pass by the harbour to get to Lahaina on West Maui. So I was there and charter boats were already filling themselves with water, non-perishable food, blankets, pillows, anything that you could think of because the community's rallying so hard to get to their family, their ohana and their friends and really trying to get stuff directly in there. There is a level of frustration, of course, in that they feel like authorities have not been swift enough to deal with this problem. Um, but, of course, the authorities are reassuring the public that they are doing everything in their power. And they have got assistance from the federal government. There are more than 400 uh, members of the National Guard here. The uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency is really gung-ho here, taking charge and they're just trying to establish some kind of picture of what happened because, of course, the death toll is at 93 right now. They're expecting that to increase, and um, until they've actually gone through, searched all of the area, they've searched about 3% with cadaver sniffer dogs. They say that they won't be opening it up. And I guess the extra challenge is the tourist element of this. You said that you saw many tourists there when you were in Maui uh, recently. What is the message to those people who are holidaying there or who are thinking about going to Hawaii? Essentially, the messages don't come to Maui. I believe the last count that I saw was 46,000 visitors and residents left Maui so far through Kahului Airport. They are trying to take some of the hotels and they're trying to work with Airbnb to open up space for those displaced. So yes, that's that's a big message there is that we're trying to find space for our own, so to speak, perhaps stay out. What do you think the recovery's going to be like, Tom? Like from what you've seen and from what you're hearing from locals, how long could it take? Yes, absolutely. It'll take years, billions of dollars and years and years and years of recovery. I never got into Lahaina, but I have colleagues who have been there and people will be able to see in the pictures the fallout is absolutely devastating and it's going to take time. At the moment, they're still trying to solidify some idea of what the death count might be. Then they have to identify them. So I've identified two of the 93 people that are confirmed dead. So it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a long time to rebuild that town because... Pretty much everything's leveled. Well, look, we do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and obviously your ongoing reporting on this. Thomas Heaton from the Honolulu Civil Beat, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hack on Triple J. There's some messages coming through. Someone on the text line says, all these fires in the Northern Hemisphere has got me absolutely terrified for our summer later this year. Yeah, we're going to keep you updated with what is happening in Hawaii and around the world with these wildfires in the weeks ahead. Hack. One junior doctor has just won an historic wage theft case against her former employer, which lawyers say could pave the way for thousands more junior doctors. On Triple J. Nobody likes to work overtime. 
but is it expected in your job? Because a lot of you constantly tell us, whether it's teaching, nursing, maybe you're in architecture, that in so many jobs you're expected to pull long hours and you don't get paid anymore for it. Young, do- young doctors, sorry, are some of the worst hit. But thousands of junior doctors have just had an historic win. They've won this class action of underpayment in Victoria's health system. And now they're going to be able to get compensation. It could have huge ripples across the entire country. For more, here's Shalala Madora. I certainly have colleagues that over a six-month period have hours adding up to tens of thousands of dollars of unpaid time. Three years ago, Dr Gabby Bolton signed up to be the lead complainant in a class action lawsuit against a Victorian public health service called Peninsula Health. I actually did very minimal, unpaid, unrostered overtime. And so for me, I guess it was more about the principle of it rather than me having a huge personal stake. Dr Bolton says working extra unpaid overtime is part and parcel of the job the generational acceptance that you do that work and you are not often paid for that because you are there to get experience and you need the exposure to clinical cases. Some hospitals and clinics might have the option of claiming those hours back, but it comes at a professional cost. If you seek it and all your colleagues aren't, you're labelled as being inefficient. But other workplaces just turned a blind eye to it altogether. The health services have no idea how many hours junior doctors are actually working or it's used as a way to cover up illegal rostering of of excessive hours that are dangerous for us as clinicians and also for our patients. A junior doctor is a trainee who's finished most of their education but needs to do a paid work placement to be fully qualified as a doctor. Because of that, they often get loaded up with a lot of work. Dr Bolton and some of her colleagues thought enough is enough and they challenged the assumptions of unpaid overtime in the federal court and they won. I was just relieved to get a result. Um, I did get a little bit nervous on the actual afternoon. I thought, oh my gosh, what, what, you know, what happens if we lose? Dr Lucy Crook is a junior doctor and the head of the Australian Medical Association's Committee for Training Doctors. She's also a member of the union that supported the class action. If you're listening to this going, well, I do overtime too, consider what Dr Crook has to say. It's often not one thing. If doctors are tired and making small errors, all those small errors just line up and then, yeah, it does. It's life or death. Dr Crook has signed up to be part of another class action in Victoria. I think there's nine other cases against other health services um, in Victoria. So hopefully... The Peninsula Health case has set a precedent. Peninsula Health sent Hack a statement on the court case. Our junior doctors are an important part of the future of our organisation and we acknowledge the important contribution they make across all our hospitals and healthcare sites. We are carefully reviewing the judgement of the federal court and are not in a position to comment further at this time. Outside of Victoria, there are similar class actions over wage theft in New South Wales and the ACT. Dr Crook says junior doctors have been trying for years to change the system and taking legal action has been a last resort. It's not really about the money. It's more about the fact that we tried to achieve change um, through other means and felt that we just had no other option other than to to go after the, the purse strings. His honest decision 
we think will have a profound effect on the Victorian litigation, but it will, its ripples will be felt in the ACT in New South Wales as well. Andrew Grech is a partner at Gordon Legal, one of the law firms that took on Dr Bolton's class action. Andrew says it took a lot of courage for junior doctors to speak up about their working conditions. They're employed on 12-month contracts. They require the references of their consultant superiors in order to be admitted to training courses for specialties. Hack asked the Victorian Department of Health, which is in charge of Peninsula Health, for a statement. They said they were considering the judgment and couldn't comment further. Andrew reckons that state health departments could be on the hook for a lot of cash if they also lose those other class action lawsuits. Over six years of 20 to 25,000 uh, young doctors, that's likely to cost you know many tens of millions of dollars to ensure that people are properly compensated for what they should have been paid. Dr Bolton says she hopes the result of the class action breaks the culture around assumptions in hospitals that junior doctors will work whatever hours are thrown at them. This is across the board and this has been going on for a very, very long time and it does need an overhaul. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. And yeah, a lot of messages on this one on Hack's Instagram. Someone says, I'm a nurse and I've always thought it was so dangerous and wrong to expect doctors to work such long hours, especially when they have to make some of the most important decisions. It makes no sense. Another person, Australia's health system needs an overhaul. Pay your workers properly, says that person. All right time to get into the World Cup. Hack! If you don't know about it, if you're not hearing about it, then you're under a rock somewhere. So definitely the buzz is, is a happening and hopefully we'll continue. On Triple Jack. Australia's obsession with the Tillies is growing every single day. Expect to hear a lot more about them this week on the home stretch of the Women's World Cup. Four million Aussies tuned in to watch the Matildas win against France over the weekend. So how is this incredible spike in interest going to filter down to community sport? Like, I'm wondering, has watching the World Cup got you interested in playing football? Let me know. Message in 0439 757 555. Well, Football Australia is saying the number of people playing is set to skyrocket in the years ahead. There's even a worry that we don't have the facilities in Australia to deal with this spike in demand. So we've been having a look into it how it is going at a grassroots level. Our Northern Territory reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk, has been taking a look. Courtney Vine for the semi-finals. She scores! She pulls away! And the referee says... If you weren't aware of the Matildas a month ago, you bloody are now. The hype is real. The fandom is wild. The premiers of New South Wales, Victoria and WA have opened up new live sites to bring together tens of thousands more. And they're even talking about a public holiday if the Matildas win the whole thing. If we did do it in Sydney for a big public holiday and a massive ticket tape parade, can you imagine the kind of energy, economic excitement... 
And while we're all watching a long way from where any of the games are being played, Darwin is experiencing its own World Cup fever. Nice one, Cesar. Yep, 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 yep. Pass it. Over here, over here. Yep. At the nice, Mindle Aces nice. women's team weekly training, the vibes are on. Definitely since this World Cup, like this one particularly, has just brought so much focus onto women playing sport. It's been incredible. Some of the team was in Brisbane to watch the Matildas match on the weekend. Stephanie and her teammate Abby reckon interest at their club is about to explode and there's going to be way more young women keen to have a kick. I think a lot of more girls will be encouraged to continue that after 16 because they'll feel supported, they'll feel like it's a sport they can get it, like a sport they can get amongst. And this World Cup is smashing stereotypes in more ways than one. For years, Mariam Zahid's been helping women from Afghanistan get involved in community sport. One moment during this World Cup caught her attention. Rocco's Nahaila Benzina became the first player to wear a hijab at a Women's World Cup. Mariam was stoked with Morocco's Nahalia Benzina's decision to wear a hijab. She says it sends a strong message of inclusivity, but hopes the decision isn't weaponized to deter particularly Muslim women from playing. However, regardless of her attire, I hope that the communities, particularly those in position of influence, uh, they, um, they stop using religious attire as a means to prevent or encourage women to participate in contemporary sport activities. And Mariam says, while all the attention is on the professionals right now, the real investment needs to be in community sport. Everybody talks about FIFA and World Cup and women, and then once they are gone, these smaller clubs that they become uh, isolated and excluded. The cost of living are quite uh, high, and a lot of parents that I am working with, uh, they can't afford, not just I'm talking about soccer, but any other sport activity. There's actually research that Football Australia has done and it predicts participation in football growing by 20% in Australia on the back of this World Cup. Obviously, that sounds great, but there's a problem too. Where are all these people going to play? Football Australia said in a statement, Across Australia, many of our clubs are reaching their capacity, highlighting the existing facilities gap. About 41% of clubs nationwide offer female-friendly amenities. We're actively collaborating with governments at various tiers to rectify this and the lack of pitches and adequate floodlighting. Considering that football remains Australia's number one team-based sport in terms of participation, this gap from other sports will continue to widen on the current trajectory. Patricia Pereira coaches at the grassroots and agrees a lot more investment is needed. She says that'll include more volunteers and she wants to see women take up non-playing roles around the game as well. But also I'd like to be maybe an example to other, you know, girls growing up that are involved in the sport. They might be thinking about coaching, you know, they might want to learn, you know, refereeing, you know, something to, to actually help build those numbers of of women and girls because, yeah, if you're not seeing it, you don't know about it. Back at football training in Darwin, Stephanie's just happy we're talking about women's sport. Watching sport my whole life. I grew up watching AFL and you don't ever stop to think about how weird it is that we all watch like 18 men run around a field and then, you know, six men sit on a panel and talk about it and then if the roles are reversed, like no one would do that. No one would watch that many women playing sport but like now with the World Cup, we're actually seeing people paying attention to women's sports. That's really cool. Hack on Triple J.
Miles Holbrook Walk with that update. Hey, let's get into this Matilda's Fever with an expert. Emily Gilnick is a Matilda forward, unfortunately out of action at the moment with injury, but Emily's got more than 50 caps playing for the Matildas, including at the 2019 World Cup at the Tokyo Olympics. She's with us now. Hey, Emily, thanks for coming on Hack. How you going, guys? Yeah. Um, really good, thanks. We're so happy to have you. As a Matilda, someone who understands this so well, how does it feel mm-hmm. to see Australia rally so hard behind your team? There's probably a bit of you thinking, oh, it's about bloody yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time coming for sure. What I will say is it's totally different that I'm seeing it now outside of the team environment. So I'm seeing it kind of from like a spectator point of view which is pretty surreal. I know the girls probably don't see the magnitude of it right now because they're in their bubble, but I'm sure they're looking on social media and stuff. But um, it's pretty incredible. Look, I think it's, you know, things that we've, something like this is what we've dreamt of our whole entire life, especially a World Cup on home soil. But I think we never, ever expected, we just hoped um, it would have the shift that it's having on um football in Australia. So it's like incredible. Yeah. There's some really heartwarming moments we're seeing. We're also seeing some really serious stuff too, like players, former players like Melissa Barbieri coming out and saying Mm -hmm. to politicians, if you're serious about this sport, you actually need to fund it properly, not just talk about public holidays. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I actually stumbled across that article today. I know Melissa Barbieri quite well. Uh, You know, I'm glad someone's speaking out about it because for the longest time we've been trying to grow the league here. And, you know, there's there's a big reason as to why all of the National Matildas right now have gone overseas. Like I've, I've played overseas and abroad my whole entire career. So, you know, I've... I've been missing home and missing family and, and important things my whole life because we don't have a full-time professional league here in Australia. So I'd love to see a turning point here. And, you know, we want we want world-class players, but we don't have the funds. We don't have the facilities. And, and for a long time, we've, we've needed a real shift. It's the first time this season that the league will go full, you know, a nine-month season. But um, you'd be horrified to know what the minimum wage is for that and, and what – there's, there's no way that, you know, national team players can afford to stay, you know, for nine months of the year um, with that type of salary. So I'm hoping there's a real change. You know, she she is right and you need someone to kind of to put it out there um, from that point of view. So, you know, I'm glad she's done it because it's really, really important and there's, there's, there's not a better time right now to do that. Emily, we were just hearing about how this huge interest is filtering down at a local, like, grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Your teammate, Ellie Carpenter, had some beautiful words the other day when she spoke about the Matildas' yep. um, job being to inspire the next generation. What kind of difference yes. do you think this one tournament is going to have on women's sport generally in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. Ellie's a really good friend of mine. Um, you know, she has a great story. Small town, country girl, didn't have much, you know, did the travel to get to where she is. And, you know, she deserves everything everywhere she's gotten so far. Look, I think what it's going to do is have it. It's what I'm seeing is having an impact on both boys and girls, but women's sport entirely, not just women's football. Um, it's shown that, that, a women's World Cup is has exceeded the expectations of what we ever thought of. I don't know if you know the I'm sure you've heard the statistics of, you know how much it's blowing the views out of the water, the the jersey sales, everything. It's it's to a magnitude that we never thought was really possible. Um, so I mean, if I was a young kid, and I think we only have the you know the Kathy Freeman Freeman um, moment to reflect on, but as a young kid right now watching the Matildas, I mean, you couldn't be any more inspired and and you'd probably be looking at these girls right now thinking, that is my dream. And that's and and this dream seems real now because 
before this World Cup, you never really saw it being a, you know, it was professional, yes, but in terms of, of payment and facilities and and the way it's being promoted, we never really had this before. Um, so this is, you know, hopefully a real, real turning point and for the women's game and women's sport in general as well, like you said. Another interesting part of all this, like with all the increased interest in football, mm-hmm. there's also a lot of interest in the players' personal lives, which maybe is probably yep. not that comfortable all the time. Yeah, You've spoken yep. about the difficulties uh, of coming mm-hmm. out in the past. You're at a point now where you, a lot of your teammates, are able to be out, to be proud. Yep. How important is that representation in sport to you, Emily? Yeah, I mean, it's crucial. I mean, for me, someone who was, you know, a public figure, maybe not someone like Sam Kerr, for example, but still a public figure and still a role model for all these young girls, I still didn't feel like I was able to, um, you know, express myself, be free. And and I don't know if that's, you know, just how the world was perce- uh, perceiving that kind of thing at the time. I feel like we've had a real turning point since same-sex marriage was um, legalized. However, I still don't think it's where we need it to be. There's obviously the sad thing for me is there's still a lot of male players I feel that haven't quite been able to reach that um, point where they can comfortably come out. But there, there is a promising future for the females that have. I know Chloe Legazzo, a, a really, really good friend of mine, she was probably the first in the Matildas team to really be open about it. And that kind of gave me the confidence. So what it demonstrates is you need these public figures to to come out and to be confident and to show the world that, like, you know, they're happy with who they are and which it's sad that we even have to come out. It should just be normalised. But you need these people before you to, you know, give, you know, the next generation or anyone just who's struggling with their identity yeah. to be a bit more comfortable. Um, and I know, you know, players like Chloe Legazzo did that for me. and. Yeah. So this platform right now needs to be used, Um, definitely needs to be used, yeah. We definitely appreciate your take on that. Some really powerful words Mm -hmm. there. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with us. We'll be watching this week, of course. Matilda, Emily Gilnick, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy the big match coming up. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.